Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, I'm Nate Fisher, and this is Timeline Tapes, the podcast made by the YouTube channel Timeline. On this podcast, we take documentaries and TV shows from our channel and turn them into podcasts that you can listen to wherever you are. This week, we're bringing you one of our most intriguing documentaries, World War II and the Man of Steel. This two-parter reassesses Stalin's role in the struggle between Germany and the Soviet Union and why it may have ultimately been more critical for British survival than the Battle of Britain itself. The voice of the episode is Professor David Reynolds, who shows how Stalin learned to compromise in order to win, and how Britain and the United States were drawn into an alliance with a dictator almost as murderous as the Nazi enemy. He was a little man, about five foot five, in his sixties, rather tubby, enjoyed his drinks and his smokes. An unlikely hero, perhaps, but in the dark days of the 20th century, he helped save Britain. And he was one of the biggest mass murderers in history. Stalin was his party name. The British liked to think that their survival in the Second World War was secured by their finest hour in 1940, the Battle of Britain. Churchill's bulldog leadership. But more critical was what happened on the other side of Europe in 1941, the horrific life-or-death struggle between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. And crucial to the outcome would be the leadership of Stalin. Stalin meant man of steel, but the reality of his war in 1941 didn't live up to that name, as he lurched from crisis to crisis coming close to a nervous breakdown. It was touch and go. In 1941, the Man of Steel blew it. His military bungling cost millions of lives. He nearly lost Moscow and almost let Hitler win the war. I want to explore how, despite his spectacular mistakes, Stalin clung on to power and led an extraordinary fight back against Hitler's military machine. This is the Second World War from the less familiar Russian perspective, a story of dramatic twists and turns that helps us to understand why Nazi Germany was eventually defeated and why a Stalinist Iron Curtain came down across half of Europe. The German invasion of the Soviet Union 
Operation Barbarossa started here on the Bug River, 180 miles east of Warsaw, early on the 22nd of June, 1941. And it began as a walkover. Along a front a 1,000 miles long, more than three million German troops in three vast army groups surged across the border and deep into Soviet territory. Officially, the Soviet Union called it a surprise attack. But more than that, it was a paralysed defence. Paralysed from the very top by the Man of Steel. For hours, Stalin wouldn't even allow his commanders to fire back. It must surely go down as one of the most spectacular military blunders in history. By noon on day one, a quarter of the Red Air Force had been destroyed. Over 1,200 planes, many of them lined up on the ground, uncamouflaged. In Moscow, Stalin was beside himself with incredulous rage, lashing out at everyone around him. This is a monstrous crime! Those responsible must lose their heads! But this was a disaster born in his paranoid mind and in the brutal, terrorised regime that he had created. 1941 was a damning verdict, almost fatal on 20 years of Soviet history. Yosef Vissarionovich Zhugashvili seemed an unlikely leader. Small, with a withered arm and a club foot, his sallow face pockmarked from smallpox. As a child in dirt-poor Georgia, deep in the Caucasus, he was regularly beaten by his shoemaker father. Nor did Stalin sound like a leader. With his flat, monotonous delivery, he was hardly a great orator, and he never lost his thick Georgian accent. This was an outsider's voice, and faintly ridiculous. One British wartime interpreter likened it to Wigan Pier Lancashire, almost as if George Formby had been made dictator. For a job well done in constructing the Moscow Metro, we declare gratitude to the whole underground construction collective of engineers, technicians and workers, both male and female. Stalin wasn't an intellectual like Lenin and the Bolshevik elite. His doting mother wanted him to become a priest, but young Stalin was expelled from seminary. He found his true calling as a revolutionary bandit in the dying years of Tsarist rule. His specialty was bank robberies. In one heist in Tbilisi, he and his gang seized a quarter of a million rubles and left around 40 guards and bystanders dead. But Stalin was a crook with a cause. The proceeds of this and other raids helped fund the Bolsheviks in their bid for power. After the revolution in 1917, Stalin concealed his ambitions behind a facade of dull reliability. A backroom boy, not a big hitter. He was made general secretary of the party, sort of keeper of the card indexes. Neither he nor his administrative job appeared to pose a threat to rivals. But slowly, carefully, Stalin began accumulating power. Stalin made a career out of being underestimated. Behind the unimpressive exterior, this was a man with a sharp mind, 
a formidable memory and a capacity to get to the heart of any problem. Unlike other dictators, Stalin wasn't a great talker, but he was a good listener, skilled at reading the tone and the thrust of a conversation while disguising what he himself really thought. At meetings, he would say little, waiting for his moment while doodling obsessively. Here was a gangster, a street thug, but with a strategic brain and absolutely no respect for human life. In the power struggle after Lenin's death in 1924, Stalin employed his gangster logic to get rid of his rivals. He cleverly shifted his political allegiances, allying with the right to eliminate the left, Trotsky, Zinoviev, and then tacking leftward to kill off the right, Rykov, Bukharin. And in the 1930s, Stalin stitched up the loyalists and close officials who'd helped him rise, subjecting thousands to macabre show trials, torture and death. Stalin had learnt that a well-timed beating or bullet could get him what he wanted. Nowhere was this lesson more brutally applied than in his handling of the army. Stalin was haunted by history. In particular, how Napoleon Bonaparte had exploited the French Revolution to jump from corporal to emperor. Determined to weed out any upstart Bonapartist in his army, Stalin appointed a new class of political commissars to watch over his officers. And he purged hundreds of progressively-minded generals, including Mikhail Tukhachevsky, a charismatic early exponent of tank warfare. The confession of treason extracted from Tukhachevsky was handed to Stalin, spattered with blood. The Soviet leader was utterly unrepentant. Who's going to remember all this riffraff in 10 or 20 years? No one. Nobody was safe, except Stalin, and he controlled the surviving members of his inner circle through raw fear. Men like his foreign minister, Molotov. Western diplomats called him Stonars because he was so stubborn. But in private, Molotov was totally under Stalin's thumb. When Stalin had his Jewish wife, Polina, thrown in jail, Molotov joined the rest of the Politburo in voting for her imprisonment. Stalin's oldest buddy was Voroshilov, a former metal worker who liked dressing up in military uniforms. Good company over a few drinks, but really rather thick and no threat. Beria was head of Stalin's secret police. He liked to keep his hand in by doing some of the torture himself using a trunch. Then he relaxed by listening to records of Rachmaninoff or raping young women. But Stalin liked Beria because he was a coward who never challenged the boss. Stalin had created an apparently unassailable position at the pinnacle of an autocratic state. But of course that system had a fundamental weakness. It depended on one man, on his strengths, but also on his whims and neuroses. A serious misjudgment by Stalin could plunge his servile regime into chaos. And that's what happened with a vengeance when war came in June 1941. By June the 26th, 1941, just four days after Barbarossa began, 400,000 more Soviet soldiers were trapped as the Nazi pincers closed around Minsk 
a key stronghold on the route to Moscow. Barbarossa had hardly come out of the blue. Stalin, like everyone else, knew all about Hitler's demands for Lebensraum, living space for Germany in Russia. Stalin gambled on a deal with Hitler. In August 1939, he signed a pact with Germany that would carve up Eastern Europe. Stalin got half of Poland and the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. He now expected Hitler to fight a long war for Western Europe against Britain and France. But then Germany sliced through France in a month in 1940. Only Britain held out. Stalin's gamble had backfired disastrously. Victory in the West in 1940 left Hitler free to go east for living space in 1941. And now Stalin made another colossal error of judgment. In the spring of 1941, Hitler began massing his troops in Poland. It was no secret. The Kremlin accumulated a bulging intelligence dossier, including clear warnings from German deserters and the British. But Stalin, always suspicious about the capitalist West, assumed that much of the intelligence had been fabricated by Britain with the aim of dragging him into its war with Hitler. Stalin refused to go on to a war footing, telling his generals, Germany is busy up to her ears with the war in the West, and I'm certain that Hitler will not risk a second front by attacking the Soviet Union. Hitler is not such an idiot. Stalin didn't grasp that Hitler was intoxicated by a megalomaniac vision. He assumed that the Führer would act like he did, on hard-boiled calculations of national self-interest. This was Stalin's fundamental mistake. On June the 29th, reports reached Moscow that the city of Minsk had fallen. It was only a week since the German invasion had begun. At this rate, the Germans expected to be in Moscow within a month. Suddenly, Stalin seemed to grasp the enormity of the disaster. He raged at his generals, reducing even Zhukov, his chief of staff, to tears. But then Stalin crumpled. Everything's lost, he groaned. I give up. Lenin founded our state, and we've screwed it up. Stalin was driven to his dacha on the outskirts of Moscow. There, he slumped in shock. Next day, he didn't come into the Kremlin or respond to phone calls. In the dictator's absence, no one dared to take any decisions or sign any documents. Suddenly, there was a chilling vacuum at the heart. Was this a sinister game? The great actor testing the loyalty of his underlings, like the man he called his teacher, Ivan the Terrible, waiting, watchful, ready to pounce on anyone who tried to seize power. That's certainly possible, but I think Stalin had really come close to a nervous breakdown, because what he faced was not just military defeat, but the collapse of everything he'd worked for within Russia. Stalin had revolutionised his country even more profoundly than Lenin. In the late 1920s, he embarked on a frenzied campaign of modernisation. The old Russia, dominated by a peasant mentality, rooted in the orthodox religion, would be swept away 
to be replaced by five-year plans, collective farms, mass production, above all, gigantic steelworks. It was a steel crusade for the man of steel. Stalin was determined that his communist state must match up to the capitalist West. It was, he claimed, a matter of life or death. We are 50 or 100 years behind the advanced countries. We must make good this distance in 10 years. Either we do so, or we shall go under. Stalin's Russia did catch up. During the 1930s, iron and steel output increased fourfold. A country that produced only 700 trucks in 1928 churned out more than 180,000 in 1938. Stalin's second revolution dragged Russia into the 20th century, but it couldn't have been accomplished without the utter ruthlessness that was his trademark. Just as he'd eliminated opponents within his inner circle, Stalin simply swept away any of the wider Russian population who resisted industrialization. Many were packed off to prison camps in the Arctic wastes of Siberia. This was the notorious Gulag, where nearly two million Soviet citizens were incarcerated in 1941. The forced collectivization of agriculture was even more brutal. Peasants often fought back against state seizure of their land and livestock. As a last act of defiance, many killed their own animals. Half the Soviet Union's cattle were slaughtered. In the famine that followed, an estimated five million people died. This was Stalin's revolution, its triumph and its tragedy. Now it was all falling apart, and Stalin must have known that it was largely his fault. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. 
We're about to learn how and why the State Defense Committee, the GKO, was set up in 1941. On June the 30th, 1941, with German panzers rolling towards Moscow, the Politburo drove out to Stalin's dacha. They found him sitting in an armchair. Stalin looked up, haggard and nervous. Why have you come, he asked, apparently suspecting a coup. But the men in suits were on a very different mission. They wanted Stalin to return, to take charge of a new state defence committee, a sort of war cabinet. The relief on Stalin's face was transparent. But, he asked, can I lead the country to victory? There may be more deserving candidates. His old crony Voroshilov spoke up. There is none more worthy. Nodding, Stalin accepted his new role. Even at the moment when Stalin had screwed it all up, his yes-men hadn't the guts to depose him. Or more exactly, and more chilling, after a decade in which they'd been both the agents and the victims of Stalinist terror, they couldn't imagine Russia without him. Now Stalin began to regain his nerve. His prime task was to steady the country, dispelling the swirl of rumour and panic. One old man in a Moscow street complained, Why hasn't anyone spoken to us on the radio? They should say something, good or bad, but we are completely in a fog. On July the 3rd, Stalin finally broke his silence with a speech relayed across the country through loudspeakers in factories and streets. Hitler's troops have succeeded in capturing Lithuania, the western part of Belarusia, part of western Ukraine. A grave danger hangs over our country. Stalin's delivery was as flat and toneless as ever. His Georgian accent still grated. But what he actually said was astounding. He frankly admitted that most of the Western Soviet Union had been lost. He even addressed his people, not just as comrades, but as brothers and sisters and dear friends. From the depths of the crisis, Stalin was attempting to build a new relationship with his people. But behind the soft soap was the old iron fist. Stalin intended to terrorize his army into fighting. He issued an order, dryly known as number 270. Those falling into encirclement are to fight to the last. Those who prefer to surrender are to be destroyed by any available means, while their families are to be deprived of all state allowances and assistance. This savage order was Stalin's handiwork, but he got his henchmen, including Molotov and Voroshilov, to add their names at the bottom. When Stalin's son Yakov was captured, Order 270 was applied to his family. His wife, Yulia, Stalin's daughter-in-law, spent two years under arrest. Yakov was later shot at a POW camp near Lubeck. Whether in an attempt to escape or as a deliberate act of suicide has never been clear. But flogging his own people was not enough. Russia couldn't survive the German onslaught alone. The only other power still fighting Germany 
was one that had tried to crush the Russian Revolution. Now, in an extraordinary U-turn, Stalin reached out to the old capitalist enemy. Equally amazing, Britain's Prime Minister, a notorious red basher, was ready to meet Stalin halfway. I see the Russian soldiers guarding the fields which their fathers have tilled from time immemorial. I see advancing upon all this in hideous onslaught the Nazi war machine with its clanking, heel-clicking, dandified Prussian officers. It seemed as if Winston Churchill was going back on everything he'd been saying in the last 20 years. After the Russian Revolution, he even wanted British troops to help stamp out what he called the foul baboonery of Bolshevism. By 1941, Churchill's view was changing. In part, he recognised that Stalin's Russia was very different from Lenin's anarchic state. But it was also a matter of political expediency now, because the Soviet Union was his enemy's enemy. The day Barbarossa began, Churchill told an aide, if Hitler invaded hell, I would at least make a favourable reference to the devil in the House of Commons. In telegrams to Stalin, Churchill promised tanks, planes and food. But privately, the British didn't think the Russians would last a month against the army that had smashed France. Then Hitler would turn back on Britain. His invasion of Russia is no more than a prelude to an attempted invasion of the British Isles. He hopes, no doubt, that all this may be accomplished before the winter comes. Today, we assume that the Battle of Britain had been decided in 1940. But that wasn't how Churchill saw things in 1941. Just three days into the German assault on Russia, he ordered that Britain's defences must be at concert pitch for invasion from September the 1st. In September 1941, it did indeed look as if Russia's big cities were doomed. In the north, German troops laid siege to Leningrad, the old Tsarist city of St. Petersburg. Hitler ordered it to be destroyed street by street and then razed to the ground. Down south, German panzers encircled Kiev, capital of the Ukraine. Out of his depth, Stalin could only bluster and bully. Hearing that Nikita Khrushchev, the local party boss, was ready to surrender, Stalin telephoned him in a rage. You should be ashamed of yourself. Do whatever it takes. If not, will make short work of you. Stalin rejected any retreat at Kiev, thereby condemning over 600,000 Soviet troops to German prisoner of war camps. For most, that meant certain death. After yet another disaster, Stalin was in a state of panic. He now sent Churchill an anguished appeal, written in his own hand, urging Britain to mount a second front against Hitler. A landing by some 30 divisions, several hundred thousand troops, in the Balkans or France, before the end of the year. But this was pure fantasy. Churchill didn't have 30 usable divisions in the whole British army. With no help in sight, 
Stalin now faced the ultimate threat from Hitler, who targeted Moscow itself in an offensive codenamed Operation Typhoon. The name proved apt because the Germans simply blew away the Red Army. By October the 5th, German tanks were only 80 miles from Moscow. Stalin placed veteran General Georgi Zhukov in charge of the defence of the Soviet capital with one of his highly motivational pep talks. If Moscow falls, heads will roll. The Germans were now approaching one of the sacred sites of Russian history, renowned in literature, music and folk memory. Stalin ordered a last stand here, on what he called the Mozhaisk Line. The Mozhaisk Line was largely a figment of Stalin's imagination, but it was rooted in Russian history because it ran across the old battlefield of Borodino. Borodino was the epic battle between Napoleon's France and Tsarist Russia. It was evoked in sound by Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture and immortalised in words by Tolstoy in War and Peace his classic novel, which was being serialised on Radio Moscow. Now, Russian troops slugged it out with the Germans around the very earthworks where their ancestors had fought Napoleon's Grand Army. Yet whatever Stalin's wishful thinking, the Russians were driven from the field of Borodino, as in 1812, back towards the western outskirts of Moscow. This was a critical moment. The fate of Moscow, the very outcome of the Second World War, hung in the balance. Now Stalin wrestled with the same terrible question faced in 1812 by the Tsar's Marshal Mikhail Kutuzov, whether to fight for Moscow or abandon the city. Here in 1812, Kutuzov decided to fall back and sacrifice Moscow in order to preserve his army and ultimately save Russia. Now, in 1941, Beria took a similar line, arguing, Moscow is not the Soviet Union. Defending Moscow is useless. Zhukov, on the other hand, was sure that Moscow could be held. Stalin, torn between these conflicting views, poured over a new biography of Kutuzov, underlining the sentence, up to the last moment, no one knew what Kutuzov intended to do. While Stalin dithered, his staff packed his belongings and made ready a special train. Then, on the morning of October the 15th, Stalin authorised the government to prepare an evacuation to Kuybyshev, 500 miles east of Moscow. According to the minutes from the meeting, Comrade Stalin himself will be evacuated tomorrow or later depending on the situation. Even at this, its most desperate moment, Stalin's regime kept up its calculated yet gratuitous cruelty. As the Soviet bureaucracy geared up to go, the jails were cleared out. One victim was part of Stalin's inner circle, Bronya, the wife of Alexander Poskrobyshev, Stalin's secretary, the bald little gatekeeper of the Kremlin office. Bronya had been imprisoned on trumped-up charges of treason. Poskrobyshev was distraught, but Stalin did nothing to help. Don't worry, he said sweetly. We'll find you another wife. During the evacuation of Moscow, Bronya was executed. Choking back his grief, 
Postgrobyshev kept on working for Stalin round the clock. One death is a tragedy, a million deaths are a statistic. That cliché is often attributed to Stalin. Whether or not he actually said it, that's certainly the way he did things. Inflicting cruelty on a mass scale, but also at a personal level on close associates. Poskrobyshev, Zhukov, Khrushchev, even his own family. This was a man who, I think, derived real sadistic pleasure from playing with people's minds. Stalin's own mind about evacuation was still undecided. On October the 16th, 1941, the people of Moscow woke to what seemed like a ghost town. No buses, trams or even policemen. Across the city, grey snowflakes were falling, ashes from the burning of millions of official papers, even party cards. It seemed that Hitler would soon achieve his dream of consigning Bolshevism to the rubbish heap of history. Then suddenly the city became infected with panic as news of the evacuation spread. Abandoned shops were looted. Cars and trucks clogged the roads going east. The game seemed to be up. One man noted in his diary, Today Moscow is like an ant heap. People loaded down with goods going in all different directions. The metro's closed. People are saying it's to be blown up or flooded and that the Germans will arrive tonight. At an outlying railway siding, Stalin's train was ready. According to one of his aides, the Soviet leader paced up and down in his tattered greatcoat, weaving in and out of the steam, still pondering. Then he told his staff, no evacuation, we stay here until victory. The evacuation order was revoked. Hundreds of looters were shot and the capital was placed under martial law. No one can really judge what tipped Stalin's decision. Certainly he and Zhukov knew that fresh troops were being rushed west from Siberia. But I think that Stalin's ego and sense of history also played a part. The outsider, the cobbler's son from faraway Georgia, thought that he could outdo Kutuzov, one of the heroes of the Russian past. He would save Russia and save Moscow as well. Stalin had now finally taken a grip on the crisis and on himself. His decision to stay in Moscow and quell the panic was a critical turning point of World War II. Despite appearances, all was not going Hitler's way. Hitler had assumed that what he considered to be the Jew-ridden Bolshevik regime would quickly collapse. You have only to kick in the door, he said, and the whole rotten structure will come crashing down. But when Hitler did kick in the door, the Soviet Union, though tottering, did not fall. And the Russian people, whom in racist contempt he dubbed the Slavic rabbit family, bit back. Hitler and his generals underestimated the resilience of Stalin and his state. Even more, they underestimated the tenacity of the Russian people. An early demonstration of Russian bravery had been the defence of Brest in the very first week of Barbarossa. The citadel here is still commemorated, even by the youth of the 21st century, as a hero fortress of the Soviet Union. 
The Germans expected to capture it on day one of Barbarossa. In fact, a few hundred Russians held out for eight days against a whole German infantry division with 10,000 combat troops. The Russians battled on in appalling conditions with virtually no water. The Germans tried everything, tanks, shells, bombing. Eventually, they had to winkle out the defenders room by room. One Russian soldier, Georgi Karbuk, recalled, The Germans deployed flamethrowers. They simply poked the nozzles into cellar windows and burnt everything. Even the bricks melted. Others threw grenades into cellars where families were hiding. Ultimately, the German 45th Infantry Division did conquer the fortress here at Brest. But it lost nearly 500 men in a week, more than it had lost in a whole month in France in 1940. For the German army, as well as the Russian people, Brest was a foretaste of horrors to come. The Russians were resisting. Stalin was making a stand. But as the struggle became ever more bitter, Stalin would need to do more than galvanize his people. He had to venture further into the unknown and learn how to embrace his allies in the capitalist West. Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. That's it for part one of our story. So tune in next week to hear the second half. In the meantime, if you can't wait to learn more, just head to our YouTube channel, where we have hundreds of documentaries you can watch. If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a review, too. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.